Hello and welcome to the MCB Connect podcast. I'm Shannon Osrin. This week, I sat down with Victoria's lead scientist, Dr. Amanda Caples. After being appointed to the role in mid-2016, Amanda works across the Victorian state government to build partnerships and provide advice by engaging with industry, the research sector, government, and the broader Victorian community. I began our discussion by asking about her background in the pharma sector. Although I have had a long career uh, as the director of biotech and, and people who are familiar with my work there would understand and know that I've come from WEHI and AMRAD before that. But I actually began my career doing clinical development with the French pharmaceutical company Servia Laboratories, uh, doing phase two and phase three clinical trials with their angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor. So yes, I have a, a long history in pharmaceutical development. Did that involve living overseas or where, was it all in Australia? Yeah, so I was really fortunate in that my first job out of university uh, on completion of my PhD was with Servia. So I spent six months in Paris uh, to understand um, how clinical development was progressed and uh, so that was really exciting and you know uh, I think a dream job so I really landed on my feet and uh, and then my job was back here in Australia running a phase three clinical trial particular that was my priority uh, across Australia and um, and and I would go back uh, to France uh, several times a year in order to report back and to engage in a uh, technology alliance type role as well as a clinical development role to um, you know to engage with the the sponsors of the individual therapeutic areas in France. So your experience working overseas um, that must have brought a lot of varied parts to your role that you you would have had um, to deal with a lot of different stakeholders? Absolutely and so so uh, I dealt with we had about there were, at that time the company was um, organized into uh, about 10 different therapeutic areas and whilst my pro- priority was with the cardiovascular group there was a neurology group, cancer and diabetes, and so I spent a lot of time working with those different divisions, helping them access the capability and the opportunity in Victoria, but Australia more broadly, uh, so that they could progress their drug development programs. So I spent a lot of time with uh, the pharmacists who were doing the CMC work on an individual drug candidate, as well as the toxicologists, as well as the clinicians, regulatory affairs. So regulatory affairs was part of my portfolio. And so I think from those early days, I uh, had a perfect opportunity to understand how regulatory affairs and uh, clinical development go hand in hand and the sorts of uh, complexities associated uh, with drug uh, development was instilled in me and and so just gave me a great perspective on uh, what it's all about. And you brought that to your time at the WEHI as you mentioned. Working with technology transfer 
licensing deals. Can you tell us about your time at the WEHI? Yeah, okay. So yes, I was very fortunate to spend several years at the WEHI and and that was a a transition from AMRAD, which was a technology transfer organisation set up by the Victorian government back in the 1980s. And so I had um, in that role uh, quite a lot to do uh, with the with the Weihai around the um, commercialisation of their intellectual property, at that time Weihai had an arrangement with Amrad uh, to fulfil that function, and then quite rightly uh, Weihai wanted to be the master of its own destiny, and so I was asked to um, come across uh, from Amrad and set up the business development office uh, at the Weihai, uh, and that was really to enable. Uh, the we high and we high scientists have greater autonomy over the commercialized commercialization of, of their ip so a uh, great opportunity to work with a great organization and um, you know set them up uh, for what others have subsequently um, taken on and and uh, and progressed to to be the success that it is today one of the, my proudest achievements although it was my role was really just a tiny piece of what became a great success uh, for Weihai was around Venita Clax. So I'd completely forgotten about this, but I was there, I think there was a celebration about the deal with Venita Clax and um, and AbbVie and David Vaux, who was the principal scientist or one of the principal scientists behind that initiative, for want of a better phrase, said to me, uh, Amanda, we would never be here today if you hadn't encouraged me to sign that material transfer agreement. And um, so that was the beginning of a relationship that David had with Abbott at the time, and he sought my advice. And part of my role really was to encourage scientists to engage with companies and to work out how to engage and, and, and you know, give them control over how much they wanted to be involved in drug development. So I said to David, no risk in signing uh, that MTA with, with Abbott. And um, anyway, that, that was the beginning of what subsequently became, you know, the success that it is today. But my role was uh, microscopic <laughs> in comparison <laughs> to the great work that both David and um, and people like Julian Clark and others at WeHi did to secure what has become a great success story. So you you stayed in industry for a little longer after WeHi, or did you transition into public service right after that? Yeah. So so from WeHi. Uh, I came into the public sector as the first director of biotechnology back in 2002 and and that was you know really about I had spent my formative years in the pharmaceutical industry with a a major pharmaceutical company I'd had uh, seven years in a commercialization role with AMRAD uh, several years at the WEHI so I had I felt the the major legs of the stool and that uh, the ambition of the Victorian government was to, was very similar to the ambition 20 years earlier which is how do we 
how do we stimulate the economic development and growth uh, of industry based on our medical research uh, expertise, which is acknowledged around the world. And so understanding how big companies work, understanding how tech transfer organisations work, both in a commercial, from a commercial point of view, as well as from a research institute point of view, I thought gave me the background to enable good public policy uh, to be progressed. So that's what attracted me to the Victorian government and it's been uh, an amazing opportunity that I've enjoyed every single minute of. How have you seen that taken on by um, companies? Yeah, I, look, I think companies at the end of the day need to have their own individual strategic plan. They're independent businesses and that need to stand on their own two feet for sure. However, I think having a government, having a focus in the area, particularly one where there is such uh, a long lag phase, as we all know, from discovery through development to the market, it's highly capital intensive. So, you know, a um, high risk, high capital um, uh, industry, knowing that government is there at their back, uh, that is, keen to facilitate and connect them with international players, with listening to their regulatory needs, to support the skills that they need uh, in order to underpin uh, the industry, to always work with the venture and, and the equity markets to see to what extent risk capital can uh, be available and is open to the industry. They're all the policy levers that I think an industry like biotech uh, really needed back in the in the 2000s and and probably continues uh, to need. And, uh, and 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 therefore I think government's role in this particular sector is kind of special. And um, I'm confident uh, that I can say. Uh, that both um, our SMEs and major pharmaceutical companies greatly value the role that myself and, and colleagues over the past 20 years have played to facilitate connections across the industry. Is that something that motivates you to branch out and connect with, with all those companies? Yes. Like any good pharmacologist, which I am at my heart, uh, it's all about um, identifying the receptor and then building the ligand uh, that is fit for purpose and can, can engage with that receptor for long enough to enable things to happen. And one of the great challenges in this world is about building those teams, those access eagle, identifying the capability that uh, is required or that can give an edge to a response to a particular issue or challenge, which is the receptor, is, um, is what it's all about. And seeing other people being successful as a consequence of building connections is really, really rewarding to me. Hello, my name is David Fox and I'm the Senior Director of Sustainability here at MTP Connect. 
I want to thank you for listening to our podcast series, which we find is a great way to engage with the MTP sector here in Australia and internationally. And also, you have a chance to subscribe, which is a great way to have our new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. So while you're at it, give us a rating or leave a comment. It's easy to do and it really helps people find our podcasts. Again, thanks for listening. And now back to our discussion with Dr. Amanda Caples. I wanted to go back to where you were talking about the superstars of STEM. Mm-hmm. You you're amplify that on Twitter, I see. Yeah. Can you talk about your relationship with that? Yeah, sure. So um, for those who don't know, Superstars of STEM are, um, is, is a program that is sponsored by the Commonwealth uh, Government. And so it's actually not a state initiative per se, but uh, the reason why I engage with it um, is uh, because it, you know, it's, it aligns and connects with my objective and the Victorian government's objective, which is to promote equality for, for women. And, and I think you know, oftentimes one becomes involved in one's own projects and perhaps doesn't engage with other people's programs where I thought, well, I'm a firm believer in not reinventing the wheel. And, and I think uh, the Science and Technology Australia, which has been the sponsor of the superstars of STEM, I thought, well, if I can support their objectives and amplify that, then I'm helping to support them and encouraging them to be successful, as well as they've done all this work to identify um, a dozen women uh, in Victoria who are role models for young women and girls uh, in STEM. So there was just this perfect alignment of common objectives. The obvious thing to me seemed to be, well, why don't we get together and, um, you know, the two heads are better than one. Why don't we combine our efforts? Uh, because I think at the end of the day, we've just got to really achieve a step change in encouraging women and girls to engage in STEM and we know you know the reason why we do want to do that is that it provides a basic capability that will enable those young women to pursue any career that they uh, you know might like to have a go at because a STEM education provides a scaffold through which you can do anything. I'm a great example um, of that. Is it important to attract girls um, in primary school and high school as well as university? Or where, where do you start with, um, yeah. with getting uh, girls interested in STEM? Yes, well, probably even at kinder. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, all right from the get-go. But, but it, it's fair to say, and, and my colleagues in the Department of Education and Training uh, have different interventions right across uh, that spectrum. Uh, I think the general view is that in primary school up to about year five, year six, there's not a great deal of difference between girls and boys in terms of their interest in STEM. So it's somewhere post year five uh, up to year seven and eight, if 
we, we're not able to maintain interest in STEM, then we're at risk of losing uh, those girls. So I think that's the window um, between year five and year seven. And, um, and that's not to say that we don't need to maintain a watching brief on years eight and nine. Most definitely, if we don't have people by year nine, um, it's unlikely, not impossible, <laughs> but it's less likely that they'll pursue a career in STEM. Going back to uh, your experience in um, public service, uh, have you had any dealings with um, other state governments? Do you, uh, is there a collaboration there as well? Most definitely. So we have a forum of Australian chief scientists. So that's um, chaired by Alan Finkel, the, the Commonwealth um, chief scientist. So, so we meet uh, twice a year. And um, so all chief scientists from around Australia and also New Zealand. And, um, and so we meet to share information about uh, initiatives that have been successful. And of course, also, you know, those that haven't been successful so that you know, we, we are all aligned in terms of wanting to uh, promote STEM education in our state, to connect technology with our economies. Uh, we have a different um, set of priorities in terms of any issues that, that our respective state governments uh, have. But at the end of the day, uh, Australia is just one country and what um, you know someone's working on in one state uh, is relevant and important for everybody so they're great opportunities to work together the other thing that um, that is independent of the chief scientists but I think go to your question about how do the Commonwealth and state uh, engage back in the early days when I was the director of biotech uh, the federal government had a biotech group uh, led by Biotech Australia and so we used to meet regularly um, um, two or three times a year and in between uh, on teleconference conferences and that was about how we can collectively move the biotech agenda. Nowadays that group doesn't exist like it did uh, back in the 2000s but in 2020, a similar sort of group exists around uh, space technologies. So working from the Commonwealth's commitment to the Australian Space Agency, a Commonwealth state working group has been established whereby uh, the states and the Commonwealth can work together in order to achieve the objectives of the Australian Space Agency. So many of your listeners Listeners um, might be surprised to hear that, but actually there's quite a lot of engagement uh, between the Commonwealth and the states uh, in terms of implementing common objectives around economic development. Science in space, that's a, that's a really interesting thing to think about. <laughs> Absolutely, and many solutions uh, that need to be developed as a consequence of microgravity or irradiation or just being cooped up in a tin can for a very long time. When uh, initially when I heard about it I thought oh, oh please you know um, is there really an opportunity here but the more that I looked into it every aspect of human physiology is different in space and whilst the market 
is not going to be in space. It's not going to, you know, so um, it's not going to be in astronauts or even space tourists. The fact that uh, our physiology changes, which means that we need to tackle those problems from a different perspective. A lot of the applications of those, of those questions that need to be answered will have impact on different approaches to medicine on the ground. So the market's actually back here on Earth. It's just that microgravity will give us different insights into how cells behave, uh, how infectious diseases behave. So the whole immunity and human immunity and then also the biology of bacteria and viruses are quite different under microgravity. So understanding how those things work together could give us insights into uh, approaches uh, for infectious diseases. Lastly, I just wanted to ask, you've, you've brought up your uh, PhD a lot during this episode and it's really interesting to hear that you're still applying those uh, learnings that you had in your PhD to your um, role at the moment. What would uh, your advice be to um, people entering into research? Where, what kind of avenues do you think that they have to go? Yeah, I don't think it matters which particular discipline uh, that you choose. I would choose a discipline that gives you passion or you know where you have passion and uh, that gives you satisfaction and joy in uh, asking questions and doing and gathering evidence to answer that question. I chose pharmacology because it really excited me and it was one where you know against my career advice I was uh, advised not to do pharmacology because there were no jobs in uh, in uh, at the end of the day. Who told, who told you that? <laughs> so, that so that was a, a tutor in first year. Um, and, th- and I think that is in part what has driven me to be involved in both drug development and the development of the industry so that we create jobs for the future. So that's, that's part of my secret um, inspiration for proving someone incredibly wrong. So. Uh, I'd like to think that I've done something to counter that. I wanted to say thank you, Amanda, for joining me on this episode. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Shannon. No worries. Uh, this has been the MTP Connect podcast. If you like this episode, you can subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. Rate us and leave a comment. We'll be back with more episodes uh, in the coming weeks and months. So thank you for listening.